a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on, why it's happening and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Amy Goggins. I'm a journalist and news editor here at Listener. And Keith, today... We're looking at COP26, the climate summit's been held in Glasgow. Our Prime Minister was there, royalty, Prince Charles, even actor Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) But what is it? What is COP26? (laughs) Well, COP stands for Conference of Parties. So um, it's it's a legal term and they have these conferences from time to time. So we're now up to conference number 26. So you have to go all the way back to 1992 That's when we get the first UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, so 1992. So we're talking about 30 years ago. And that was what's called an umbrella treaty. In other words, it it didn't set out any dates or targets or anything like that. It just simply said the countries that agreed to be bound by the treaty will agree to work towards the reduction of the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And that what would happen is that as the years roll by, there'd be what we call protocols. So a protocol is an agreement that hangs off a treaty. So uh, in this context, I know people talk about hospital protocols, police protocols, etc. In this context, it means in the case of Kyoto or more recently the Paris Protocol, it's an additional agreement to the main treaty. And so the intention is that as the years roll by from 1992, there'd be a succession of protocols, each one stricter than the previous one, trying to reduce uh, the amount of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. And so COP26, the 26th conference of the countries that agreed to be bound by that original 1992 treaty, uh, they've come together, hosted this time by the British government, for political reasons, they've put the conference in Glasgow as a way of reminding the Scots not to get too independent-minded because the British government can put a lot of business your way. So even the location of the conference is a political decision, in this case made by um, the British government. As you say, everybody has turned up in Glasgow pretty well, although there have been some very obvious uh, absences. One is the Chinese leader, President Xi. Now, China is an unusual country in the sense that back in 1992, the Chinese economy was about the size of Italy or perhaps even less. So it was not a major player. And so when the treaty in 1992 was drawn up, you had a list of countries that were seen as the primary polluters. And then you had a second list that was seen as developing countries. And those developing countries were expected to have fewer ambitions in terms of reducing climate change emissions. And so China, given the comparative small size of its economy, was on that second list. So the United States obviously was on that first list, Great Britain, European Union countries, etc., and Australia. Meanwhile, you had China, from which we didn't expect very much, and they were on the second list. What has happened, of course, in the last 30 years 
is that China has continued to grow rapidly and really should be treated in, inter- in these international law terms in the same way as the United States. China is now a major polluter in a way that it wasn't 30 years ago. And so President Xi, who has not been overseas for about a year and a half, so he's missed a variety of international gatherings. So since the outbreak of the COVID crisis, he has not journeyed overseas. That in itself is, is interesting. Is it um, that he's worried that if he does go overseas, he'll be met with so much hostility? After all, COVID did begin one way or another in China. Is it because he feels insecure? He doesn't want to be out of the country attending these grand events uh, for his opponents inside China to be plotting for his removal. So it may well be paranoia on his part that he just doesn't want to do it. And also the fact is that he does want to risk going to a conference and then getting, in this case, his own COVID. So he doesn't want to risk becoming sick because, again, that might encourage his critics back in China to say, look, it's time for him to stand down at next year's conference of the Chinese Communist Party. So the most obvious person who's not in Glasgow, I agree everybody else seems to be in Glasgow, but China is not in Glasgow. And of course, by the same token, Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, and that is also another major polluting country as well. It's also, of course, got horrendous COVID problems. And so it it may well be the Russian leader decided, look, it's better for my own public relations here at home for me to stay at home. Remember, all foreign policy is local. So although we, we tend to talk about foreign policy as something quite distant, uh, a lot of the considerations that go into it relate to how is this going to play out at home. So in the case of President Xi, presumably he feels insecure at home and therefore doesn't want to risk leaving home. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin, who is quite secure in his job, nonetheless has still got big headaches at home to deal with and doesn't want to be seen to be going around with the Russian, uh, sorry, with the British royal family or with the Hollywood elite, etc. So he's decided to stay home. And of course, these two are major polluting countries. It suggests something on the the part of uh, the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, that as a polluting country also, uh, by virtue of our heavy energy usage, uh, Scott Morrison was willing to walk into Daniel's den knowing that Australia was going to get heavily criticised, knowing there are a lot of people who are very critical of Australia. Although when you look at overall, we're only responsible for about 1% of global emissions. We shouldn't overestimate the amount of damage that Australia is doing, particularly when you compare it with India or China. But uh, Scott Morrison uh, did go. There was a lot of pressure on him not to go, but he did go. Uh, but of course, is already now back in Australia. So he put in an appearance, made an, uh, an uninspiring speech, and now has returned back to Australia. And of course, leaving uh, other government ministers there to do the negotiations for the second week of the conference. And, you know, we talk about Scott Morrison being there and we talk about PR. Do you think it was a good move for him to go and and speak at it? It's interesting because in retrospect, I think it was probably a disaster, even though at the time I was encouraging him to go. (laughs) um, In the same way, I was hopeful that the Queen would go, but she was probably a bit like President Xi, worried about catching 
COVID of some of the delegates because mm. um, some of the delegates there are almost denying that there is a problem with COVID. They're refusing to take vaccinations, etc. cetera. Uh, so the Queen at the last minute cancelled, although her heart is clearly in favour of um, taking strict action on uh, climate change. I was one of those who said that Scott Morrison should go, but of course his presence there has been derailed, at least in the Australian media, with the controversy over the French nuclear submarines. It's all so, we're talking about, isn't it? <laughs> it's, every, it's the only thing people have been talking about this week. That's right. And, Emmanuel uh, Macron calling him a liar. Uh, yep. You know, this is a close ally. And in a few days' time for November 11, we'll be commemorating the suffering of Australian and French soldiers in two world wars. Nonetheless, the political leaders have fallen out. These are allies. These are not... Um, you know, the Australian leader criticising North Korea. This is <laughs> a leader of um, one of our major allies. So uh, I'm glad that Scott Morrison perhaps went, even though so much of the attention that he uh, was hoping to be able to get for his ideas on what Australia should do got somewhat derailed by um, the controversy over the French submarines. That's been a built real problem for him. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. My name is Amy Goggins and before we left, we were talking all about COP26, the climate summit that's been happening in Glasgow. Dr Keith, any real progress made or is it all just talk? Yes, well, you know, Greta Thunberg, who's my hero in environmental matters, keeps <laughs> talking about blah, blah, blah. I think there's a lot uh, that she's uh, had to say on that. I think it's correct. COP26 has got to tackle two issues. One is um, the gap between the commitments that countries have made to cut their greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2030 and the total the scientists say should be done in order to reach the Paris goal. So the Paris most recent protocol, the Paris Protocol, five, almost six years ago now, agreed on um, 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. That was the target laid down in Paris. Given the nature of the climate change negotiations, it was not possible for the conference to say to each country, this is what you must do. Instead, each country has got its own national targets that it has to meet. And of course, this is where Australia has been catching a lot of flack because the general feeling is that Australia is not going to meet its own self-imposed targets. But then you look around the rest of the world and scientists are saying those targets that were laid down are not going to be met by any of the countries that have been laying them down, or very few of the countries. And this adds, of course, to the despair of the campaigners like Greta Thunberg. The second issue, which is also a little unclear, to say the least, is the what's called the finance gap. So in Paris, the richest countries promised to the developing world that they would provide $100 billion American, $100 billion American, a year by the year 2020 to help them tackle climate change and, and continue to make those payments. At the moment, we're at about $80 billion. So we're not living up to our commitments. So... These are two issues, although ironically, they're probably not going to get too much attention 
in Glasgow because Glasgow is actually going to be dealing with a, a few other issues. But they are certainly two big issues that need to be addressed. Mobilising finance and doing more to work towards closing the gap between what the governments have promised to do and what the scientists have said need to be done. Now, this takes us back into the, the whole issue of the politics of climate change. So you've got, obviously, countries like Australia that are heavily reliant upon the export of coal and other sources, but you can't say to countries, we're going to stop overnight the export of coal. Probably coal does have a limited future. Uh, the big uh, finance companies are saying they're no longer going to invest in the big coal projects. But people need coal at this very moment. We're sitting here in a lovely air-conditioned studio. My guess is that we're being powered by coal. <laughs> That's the irony of the situation. China, or one of the other reasons why President Xi can't leave China, is that China's got a, an energy crisis at the moment. President Xi has really ought to be importing more Australian coal. It's good quality coal. We've got 600 years' supply of it in the Hunter. Good quality coal. He's running out of coal in northern China. Winter is coming in. I've been in China in the, in the winter. It does get cold. So you've got factories that are working shorter weeks now, and you've got homes that are going to go without the heating. So coal is very much the energy source at the moment. Now, as I say, if you look 40 years on down the track, then it may well be that you know we're not going to be so reliant on coal. But at the moment, there are a lot of countries that do rely on coal. I selected that figure of 40 years um, because the United Kingdom, over a period of 40 years, has largely reduced its reliance on coal. So if you go back to 1750, which is when the Industrial Revolution began, originally in Great Britain, and then into Western Europe and North America, eventually to Australia, etc., coal was a component of that Industrial Revolution steam engines of one sort or another, either on rails or stationary inside factories. Uh, steam was very important as a source of energy. And so that's why we have so much carbon in the atmosphere, not because of China, which has only started in this energy business in the last few years. The real problem has been 200 years or so of British pollution and American pollution and Western European pollution. That's why they're on that first list. They were the ones who got into the Industrial Revolution first. And then in 1979, Mrs. Thatcher became Prime Minister of Great Britain. Mrs. Thatcher was a scientist. She's the only scientist I think we've ever had at 10 Downing Street. Now we've gone back to a Prime Minister who has a background in classical Greek and Latin. So we, we lack scientists in number 10. But in the case of um, Mrs. Thatcher, she was a scientist. She called herself the green goddess of number 10. And she didn't have to be persuaded it was a problem with climate change. And she started Britain's path out of reliance on coal. So I take 1979 as the beginning of this time of Britain having led the world into the Industrial Revolution for then leading the world out of the Industrial Revolution. The problem is that as Britain has moved out of the Industrial Revolution, so other countries like China and India have now moved in to fill the British space. But it's interesting that she took on the coal trade unions, not because of climate change, but because she wanted to break up the unions. 
So in 1978-79, we had the winter of discontent. The unions, through their bloody-mindedness, helped bring Mrs Thatcher to power, but she was very ungrateful because her first target for reform were the trade unions. And so by the time she left office, um, uh, just over a decade later, uh, there were actually more people owning shares in Britain than were members of trade unions. So she took on the unions, the coal, big, particularly the big coal unions. In British politics, you're always told there are three groups you never tackle, sailors, nurses, and coal miners. Well, she was willing to take on the coal miners. Terrible amount of suffering, um, immortalised in a number of, of movies and uh, musicals, etc. Terrible amount of suffering, but she closed down those coal mines. And so now uh, Britain doesn't rely on coal at all for energy. Now, what it has done is to move its manufacturing off to China. <laughs> so it enables Boris Johnson then to sort of boast about his environmental credentials. But, you know, what we overlook is that, is that the dirty work is now being done in India and China. And so you've got this domestic consideration. It's going to be very difficult to try to phase out coal. The other consideration, of course, which one has to keep on saying is that this uh, problem with the finance, that we've obviously got to help the world to move into far less reliance on carbon, far more attention to wind power, solar power, tidal power. In other words, harnessing the water power that comes from the the movement of tides um, on, on the coast or in major riverways. There are a lot of things that we can do to create renewable energy, but this is going to require a lot more expenditure because the amount of renewable energy around the world is only a few percent. As I say, coal is the major source, and then behind coal you have oil, and then you have natural gas. So these are all the energy sources that are being targeted, and we're still so heavily reliant upon that. And so we've got this situation, therefore, that we've got to cut back overall in this consumption of the coal, oil, natural gas, but it can't be done overnight because we just rely on them and we need a policy for phasing it out and we therefore need money to help us with this transition. But as President Biden is finding out at this very moment, he is having difficulty getting parliamentary or congressional support for raising the money to enable the United States to make this transition, let alone for the United States to help finance countries overseas. So Little Greta Thunberg, I think she's on the money when she's very concerned about the future of the globe and the risk that we run because not enough is being done about climate change. It is a very difficult problem to solve. Well, Dr. Keith, that's COP26. Let's hope there's some real progress made before we get to the next one. And it's not just all blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Thank you. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souda. Make sure you tune in next week where we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on. Listener.